Did you see? I wanted to start this talk by saying, when I grow up, I want to be a teacher like Dana. If you were here last week, anyone who was here last week? If you weren't, I want to recommend that you download or get on YouTube and watch that teaching. It's one of the most profound teachings, personally, I have ever heard. Um, really was. It was profound in terms of its, not just in terms of theology, but in terms of the way it addressed the nation that we live in. And often we're afraid to do that. Yet we have to. If we're going to be true to the gospel, we need to address the realities of the world that we live in. And she did that in an amazing way. So when I grow up, did you finish that? So we're looking at Philippians chapter 3 this evening, verses 1 to 11. It's a very, very, very dense text. And so one of my, one of my favorite commentators that I, I go back to time and time again has six teachings on these 11 verses. And I've got to do it in half an hour. So I'm going to pull a few things out that hopefully encourage us, challenge us, make us see things a little different, make us aware of what's happening in our world and the things that could challenge what we believe. Um, I think that's important. But I want to start with this quote. It's from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I know Chris loves Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Before we read it, Chris, who leads the community with Merrill, it's his birthday today, he's 65, so if you want to send him something, money, you know, hold it as well. It's his birthday. Your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. How's that for a quote? Isn't that challenging? Your life as a Christian, as a Jesus follower, should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. And honestly, the world we live in is the exact opposite. And we need to reverse that the best way we can. Let's get to the text. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. It's quite some things he's saying there, isn't it? If you just read it and you're pretty arrogant, you just stop there. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, 
and, some, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Interesting thing here. Remember, how many of you here when we did the introduction to Paul? We read the whole letter. This is an amazing letter. There's nothing really in this letter that Paul is correcting. He loves these people. This is a letter rich in joy. And he's very, he's loving towards them. He's like this father caring for them. But here comes a moment where he changes from this happy, loving father. And he becomes really, really confrontational against those who want to undermine the family of God. He gets in their face. He, he talks about these people who want to come in and, and add things to the community that undermine the integrity of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what He's done in us. And he's here he's talking about primarily around circumcision, the Judaizers that were creeping into the church. And you read this in Galatians as well. In Galatians, he goes even further in Galatians 5. And he says, I want these people actually to emasculate themselves. That's how peed off he is. With these people that want to undermine what God is doing. And I want to encourage you. When you look for a church. And you leave Genesis one day because you move and you go somewhere else. Look for leaders who want to protect the people. We want to protect the people and keep the integrity of the gospel. Don't water things down. Because the moment we do that, we actually lose the integrity of what Jesus has done in our lives. Now, he uses a lot of language here. Our language of today, we could use because it works in many ways as deconstruction. Anyone heard that word? It's where we're all at. People are deconstructing their faith. And actually it's not bad if you reconstruct afterwards. But if you deconstruct what you deconstruct, and then deconstruct that, you eventually deconstruct the nothing. And then you wonder, what, what is this all about? Jeremiah says, there's a time as a prophet where I pull down and then I build up. I uproot and then I plant. So it's okay to look at what you've believed, look at how you've been raised and say, I need to realign some of those things. But be careful that you don't just throw it all out and you end up with nothing. And Paul, if you were here today, I think would speak quite firmly, quite harshly actually, against people who undermine the body of Christ like that. Is that alright? Um, so, I want to say that. that that's a great quality of a shepherd. A shepherd had a rod and a staff. Staff to bring wandering sheep back and a rod to beat wolves and bears and whatever. That's a good shepherd. It's not just this person. Oh, so nice to see you. So lovely, David. No, it's someone who protects those in the flock. So, next point. This is the the major thing I kind of want to talk about. Beware of those who want to add or subtract or change the gospel. There is an apostolic gospel that has been given, that was given to the apostles to take forward and has been invested generation after generation after generation and has stood the test of time and is centered around the idea of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done and what it's done in our lives. 
And the moment we mess with that, we take away from it, we add to it, we try to change it, then we undermine the gospel and then we've got a Christianity that's some form of club, some form of religious activity, but it's not the gospel and it's not the church or the people of God or the body of Christ. Even the word church, everything's a church today. So we we have to rename that the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. Something that's beautiful, something that's honored, something that's joined to Jesus, who is God Himself. And we're we're not talking here about some of the practices or things we do once we are followers of Jesus. Paul is here talking about how do we come into this relationship with Jesus and how do we then live it out. And they preach this gospel... And if you read uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he says that the essence of this message is that Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose again, and Jesus appeared. It's the essence of the gospel. In Ephesians 2, we are saved by grace through faith. Not anything that we do so that we can't boast. This is the work of God that we put our trust in. And when you undermine that, you lose the integrity of what we believe. And my concern as I go around churches is that often our churches, and not here of course, are filled with people who are Christian. But when you question and get down, there's nothing really there. Where our church goes, we singers of songs, we listeners of sermons. But our lives are not transformed and we don't live that life into our world that causes unbelievers to say, I want what you've got. I think that it's especially true for those of you who were raised in the church. Not exclusively, but a huge portion of that. You've been raised in the church, you're a Christian, and it comes a time you think, what, what really do I believe? Deconstruction doesn't happen as much with those who got saved later in life, who had a radical encounter with Jesus for themselves. Do you know the difference? And I'm not trying to disparage one against the other in any way. I'm just saying that's a reality of what you see. And when they do the studies, that's what's happened. I was raised in the church and therefore I am this And we always used to say, just because you were born in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. Sometimes you actually have to have an encounter with Jesus yourself. I I wish I'd been raised in a Christian home. I really do. I wasn't. So I'm not knocking that. It's a fantastic thing. But we have to come to the place where we have to answer the question, who's Jesus to me? I am so delighted to be here this evening and see all the kids. So wonderful. Remember when we started? Your kids, I No kids. Now there are lots of kids. And they squawk and squeak. Isn't that wonderful? If you find that disturbing, ask God to help you. Because that's how you sound to God most of the time. <laughs> you know true? We squawk and squeak all the time but to God. And He's really patient. So we have our kids in the midst, it's beautiful. But parents, 
Invest well around Jesus for your kids so they can come to a place where they too can answer, who is Jesus for me? Not as who is Jesus for my parents. So right? You can put values, but they have to come to that moment of surrender. So, is that helpful? So what are we... What are we adding? What do people add to the church? In this day, we're saying you, you can't be saved unless you're circumcised as well. Okay, so I kind of go back to the law. I don't think we have much of that today in our world. Rather painful, we don't want to do it. But we add things like you can't be saved unless you're baptized. Actually, baptism is something that follows salvation. It's a sign of something. But some say, oh, if you're not baptized, you're not saved. That's, that's works. Or, you know, if you don't love people, you can't be saved. No, love is a response to salvation that you now serve and love people. That's what John writes about in the first letter of John, which you studied last time. Um, or, you know, if you're going to get saved, you better make sure you've got some sort of holiness. Get rid of these things. Cover your tats. Um, you know, Whatever. Because otherwise you can't get saved. No. We get saved on the basis of what Jesus has done and we trust Him. doesn't matter how dirty it is. It doesn't matter how messed up it is. When you put your trust in Jesus, you trust what He has done, the essence of the gospel, you receive new life from above. And then God begins to work in you. But He doesn't work in you to get you to a place that, that now you're ready to be saved because you praying enough and you're wearing the right stuff and it doesn't work like that. And so if we're going to be a community that really inter, inter, interacts with our world, we're going to be have all sorts of people come in here and get saved who, whose life don't change immediately. Really important. A friend of mine in Pittsburgh, they were ministering and they had this Lady who was a prostitute come to the church and radically meet with Jesus on night. And after the meeting she left and went back to her work. And they didn't try and correct it. They didn't say, you're a Christian now, you better not do this. Well, all they did was love her and care for her. She came back, worshipping, back to her business. You're thinking, what? But the more they loved her, the gaps got larger and larger and larger for her going back to what she used to do. And when they built this great bridge of love, they were able to then take a 10 ton truck of truth across and say, actually, you should stop doing that. Because they laid a good foundation first. They knew she was saved because she'd met Jesus. But meeting Jesus doesn't clear up everything first day. Actually, it takes a lifetime. You parents, I want you to give you this for your kids. And actually, it's all it's for all of us. Same, the same conversation I had with all the gentlemen who's in his 80s now. He said, people, children, then he said, people only ask two questions. The first question is, am I loved? The second question is, can I have my own way? You discover that with your kids? If you answer the second question first, it will be interpreted as I am not loved. Inside. 
and you've lost the plot already. So you have to lay down a bridge of love and acceptance no matter what. And when that's in place, you'll be able to speak truth. So really be careful when we talk about the gospel that we're not trying to hedge people in that they can't get saved because we put too many restrictions in place in the, before they even start. Is that okay? You preach the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and He loves you and you put your trust in Him and when they do, that's that. Now we build. Is that okay? Be careful you don't add things. Anybody should be able to walk through those doors and be welcome. doesn't matter what they do, what they've done, the shepherds are watching for those who want to come in to undermine, that's different. But any broken bruise, doesn't matter what their profession, it doesn't matter what they've done, it doesn't matter how dirty they are, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. If they hear the gospel and respond, that's it. We don't add to it. So please be careful. You think, oh, that's not true these days. It's true everywhere. I want to expound just for time. Be careful of subtracting from the gospel. What I mean by that, who is Jesus? You know, in the, the, when you did the first letter of John, John is dealing with Gnosticism, which is this idea of secret knowledge that people have, and actually the gospel is available to everybody. But they're also dealing with Docetism, which was this idea that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. It's the idea of Jesus that's good. And if you listen... Just go watch some preachers on YouTube and listen carefully. You will see so much of what is being preached has taken away the reality of Jesus, God and human. Jesus, a good idea, great teachings, moral person. Align yourself with that. That's taking away from the gospel. It's taking away from the reality of who Jesus is. And if Jesus did not come in the flesh and Jesus is not God, then the cross has no power. I don't think we've got time to unpack that a little bit. Remember, humanity broke covenant with God. So humanity has to be reconciled back to God. Therefore, Jesus had to come as a human to do that work. And the work could only be done by perfection, a perfect sacrifice, so that they could defeat the, the enemy. So Jesus comes as God. Perfect, but human. The moment you change those things, then the cross has no power. Because if he's not human, he can't speak on our behalf. If he's not God, he's not perfect, then he doesn't qualify. The cross is meaningless. Does that make sense? I wish we could unpack that like all set of teachings. We meet a Jehovah's Witness. They want to ask you, why do you wear a cross? Why do you wear crosses? Those are instruments of torture. They they don't want to accept that. Why? That's taken away from the gospel. And we don't, might not like the gospel. In our day and age, we look at the gospel, we think, man, it's pretty barbaric. Maybe. But it's actually the way God chose to do it. And remember, it's set 2,000 years ago in a different culture, in a different way that things were done. But be careful. Be careful. That you appease your own sensibilities. You take things away. And lose everything. Then we just become moralists. Trying to live up to some sort of standard. 
that will somehow appease God. That's already been done in Jesus. And so if you take him away, then it's not done. Then you have to do it. Then it's by works. And how do you know you've arrived? You look at, oh, I'm doing better than you. Oh, I'm doing worse than you. Now I'm screwed, basically. I look to Jesus. The essence of the gospel. We don't want to add, we don't want to subtract. We don't want to change the gospel. Mold it to our own understanding. Now, I come to say these things because Dana did it last week. So how's that? I'm going to blame her. Talking about Americanism and individualism and materialism and all that. Paul is saying here, if this could be done in our own strength and by our own good deeds, etc., then he would, have, he would have achieved it, he would have qualified, because he was the best ever, in terms of what it meant to be a great Jew. And he says, I, well, I just don't. I thought I did, but I don't. And what we find today in our world is, is we think, you know, my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, he was the preacher that was on the Mayflower. Now look at my heritage. I come from a long line of missionaries and pastors. I'm good. We've done good things. We've sent missionaries all over the world. We didn't have slaves. You know, we, we preached the Bible. Everyone got baptized. And we appealed to this heritage. Look. And actually it all falls flat in the light the beauty of the gospel because what's perfect and we see that today you know the only supposedly three countries on the on the planet that have declared themselves to be the promised land in kind of in the scriptural way Israel South Africa and the United States so we we've got this thing that we are special Are we? We're just a bunch of people just like anybody else. And each one of us has to come to a moment. Doesn't matter what our heritage, doesn't matter what our lineage, it doesn't matter how many preachers and bishops and whatever we have in our lineage, we have to come to a place where we bow our knee at the foot of the cross and let Jesus wash us. Every single one of us. And that's what Paul's appealing to here. Saying, there's a simple, profound gospel. Stick with it. Don't go either side of that. Now, the, the other side could be true. That today you identify yourself, I'm a victim of this and I'm a that. And so that becomes your standard. That's also equally unimportant in terms of the the work of the, the gospel. I'm not undermining people of, that are in that place. Some of you have heard, I'm a victim of certain things. Sexual abuse. I'm a victim. I am. So I can't, I can't claim that, oh, look how bad Jesus, you've got to have a special place for me. I'm, no, no. I've got, I, like anybody else, I have to come and bow the knee and let Jesus wash me in His blood. And my identity is not that I am a proud American. And my identity is not that I'm a proud victim. My identity is that I stand washed in the blood of Jesus and I'm his son and I'm his daughter. 
And if I am a victim, I want to be healed. And if I'm a proud American, I want to be humble. You can't not be American. You can't not be a victim. But you don't have to live like that. Is that okay? Anyone offended? I hope not. We have to just... God's got a plan. And He loves Iran just as much as He loves us. Paul's saying, I, I, I got it. I'm the best. But actually I counted absolute rubbish. When I saw the gospel, when I saw what Jesus did, and as I trusted that, He justified me. Romans 5. He saved me. I received life from above. I was converted, regenerated. Whatever word you want to use, that happened because I put my trust in what Jesus did. How can I beat that? It takes all the effort of slogging to try and be perfect. It's gone. I am perfect because He is perfect. And my life is hid in Christ. It's a covenantal, beautiful word. Please don't try to secure your own salvation. When you go out there, go talk and watch people. People are trying to secure their own salvation through all sorts of things. Somewhere it falls flat. I always say, if you know, how many of you have written exams? If the pass mark for an exam is 100%, right, if that's the pass mark, and you get 50%, did you pass or did you fail? Sorry? Fail. If you got 99.9%, you failed. 100%. Anybody here got does this life 100%? Because the moment you even think you have, you weren't humble, you're down. Does that make sense? You know, they gave that guy a badge in the church because he was the most humble man in the church and he wore it, so they took it away. Because that's what happens. The moment you think something, that disqualifies you. Therefore, let's not try and do that. It's just hard work. Relax. In Jesus. He's done the work. It's finished. Completed. Just trust that He's done it for us. And Paul says, I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to trust. And I'm going to count everything as rubbish. He actually, the word dung there is the word skabala. Which means crap. Feces. That's what the word means. Is that he's trying to make a point. Everything that I have done is so garbage, so rubbish, so refuse, feces, compared to this incredible gospel that Jesus has done, and I trust in that and receive new life. So he goes on. I'm trying, there's a lot here. He says, I'm going to go on. I'm going to put my effort into this. I want to know this Jesus better. I want to know him. That's what I'm going to put my effort into. I'm going to spend my time, whatever, to I want to know Him. He knows me, but I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection. I don't want to spend my time trying to make sure I'm okay with God. That's already settled. 
I'm going to spend my time getting to know Him, know intimacy with Him, be connected to Him. Even at the time. We go back to the first verse. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it's safe God to you. Rejoice. It's a word that, that Paul uses in every one of his letters. Rejoice. Again I say rejoice. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16, 17, 18. If you want to know what the will of God for your life is, rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in every circumstance. That's the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? How many people have asked, what's the will of God for me? Rejoice, pray, thanksgiving. That's one answer. Rejoice is everywhere. And what is rejoicing? Can you not answer that? What does it mean to rejoice? Celebrate. Celebrate what? Something good. Something good? What's the good? The gospel, okay. Rejoice comes from the word joy, doesn't it? So you're letting what's inside outside. Now, some of you have heard this, but I want to say it's really important because this is key to this life. Joy is not an, primarily an emotion. Joy is a state of being. Happiness is emotion. Sadness is emotion. Disgust is emotion. Anger, fear, those are emotions. Joy is not primarily emotion. It's a state of being of the right hemisphere of your brain. When you know that someone is glad to be with you, they delight to be in your presence, your neurons fire relationally, and neuroscientists who are not Christians call that a state of joy. So why does Paul say rejoice? He's saying we need to live a life, which that life that should attract unbelievers, that's so rejoicing, so full of joy, because we know that Jesus loves to be with us. God is delighted to be with us. It's not an effort. You don't have to beg. Oh, Jesus, would you come hang with me a bit? No, He wants to be with you. That's why... Through justifications, Romans 5, we have peace with God. It means the door's open. Hebrews says we can enter the throne room of grace boldly to obtain mercy anytime we like. Why? Because it's open. He wants to be with us. That's why he sent Jesus. He wanted unity. So joy is a state of being knowing that God loves to be with you. And when you know that, you can, wow, that's good. I feel secure. I can rejoice. So when we sing songs of worship and we're rejoicing, we're not just singing songs. We are rejoicing in the God who loves to be with us. He doesn't think, oh my God. Here comes Stu again. Gotta put up with him. Oh my word. He's so complicated. He's always asking for things. God doesn't think like that. He's delighted to be with us. He's delighted for you to chat with him. Complain to him, moan at him, shout at him. Don't get offended. He's delighted to be with you. That's why he sent Jesus. Now, some of them kind of being animated. 
But this word joy is really, really important. Because it's actually key to the peace of God. Which you will see when you get to chapter 4. And what we need, we need the peace of God. Because that's the antidote to anxiety which all of us suffer from. There's not one of us here that doesn't have anxiety of some form. We want to deal with it. What we do is the peace of God coming. Because God loves to be with us. Now I want to give you a test. Some of you know this because I've done it with you. Here's an experiment. Next time you meet someone and you see them, say, I'm so delighted to be with you. It's amazing to be there with you today. And see what happens. Do you think someone's going to go, oh, grumpy. They'll all smile. I did it with some of you this evening. I said, hello, it's so good to be with you. You smile. Why? Because your neurons fire relationally when I do that. It's how your brain works. It's how God made it to be. You know that verse in Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is your strength? You know that verse? We sing songs. But when do you need strength? When you're weak. Mostly when you're weak, you're not happy. So therefore, joy is not an emotion. Joy is knowing that God wants to be with you. And you can be strong when you feel weak because He's with you and He delights to be with you. So you can, you can be full of joy and be sad at the same time. You can't be happy and sad at the same time. But you can have joy and sadness. You can, have, you can lose a loved one. And be grieving, but be full of joy and be able to go to the graveside and say, today has been a good day as you lay that person to rest. Why? Because joy is a state of being in your relationship with God, not an emotion. So when you come to worship, it's not about how you feel. It's about how you recognize that God wants to be with you and you want to be with Him. So you can worship when you're sad. You can worship when you're angry. You can worship when you're fearful. You can worship when you're anxious. Because those are emotions. And they go up and down. And we have them all the time. We are emotional. But joy, that's a state of being. Kingdom of God, Romans 14. Righteousness, right standing with God. Peace and joy. I'm not going to get finished. Is this alright? Is this helpful? I hope it is. God is glad to be with you. Don't be afraid of people saying things about the brain. God created the brain. He created the neurons. Parents, I'm going to say this quickly, about 34 minutes. When, you have a, when you, your baby came, and you have a, or when you were a baby, your parents took you and said, Oh, go, 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 go. Oh, so wonderful. Oh, we love you. Oh. You know, we do all those things. What you're saying to that baby subconsciously, is, I'm glad to be with you. I'm glad to be with you. What that does is creates a state of joy. They've done the scan, the test. When you have joy, you feel secure and you know who you are. Security and identity is established in that secure love attachment. So when you get saved, it's not just some transaction. You come into a secure love relationship with the your Father God. And He goo-goos and gagas over you. He's so glad to be with you. That gives you identity. And that gives you security. And your people. Your people. This people. Everything's firing. 
When you have insecure, when you have broken attachments, I grew up with broken attachments, you don't have that, therefore you don't have joy. You don't know who you are. You feel insecure. You don't know your identity. Therefore you have to try find it somewhere else or in something else. That's why salvation is so wonderful. Because it changes all of that and puts the secure love attachment back to the Father the way it was intended at creation. And He wants to walk with you in the cool of the day. It's not a problem. He, he was so delighted. He so wanted to be with Adam and Eve that He went looking for them even when they hid. That's joy. So I feel animated. I apologize. I feel like one of those preachers until... Um, can we put that quote up again please your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God and that's not because you've got great theology nobody cares it's not because you pray three times a day it's not because you come from a great family. That comes because your life so radiates joy and love that it's a, I want what you got. Because what I've got is not what you've got. Then you don't have to evangelize. Oh, I've got to go do evangelism. It's a big pressure. We used to have to go and knock on doors and stand on street corners. They made us. I hated it. But actually when I began to live, or anybody live a delightful, rejoicing, happy, whoa, life is so good. What? What's your, what's your problem? What have you been smoking? Are you on crack or something? No. No. I have joy. Because I know I'm loved, and someone loves spending time with me. You guys who want to date, make sure the person you date knows that you love to be with them. It's joy. It creates a good relationship. So you're going to come to the table.